0: Hey, if you you have a Bible, open it. We're in, interestingly enough, the book of Jude this morning. Um, The passage is in your order. It's also, will be here behind me. Um, I know that's not a a place you normally find yourself turning. Honestly, it's so short, you might miss it. It's right before Revelation. Uh, For starting last week and for the next Four weeks, counting this one. What we're going to be doing here during this time is walking through what we're calling parting words, which really just means it's places in scripture where transitions are being talked about and what it is that we go through as people, what it is, how the gospel speaks to that and how, how the Lord is in the midst of it. This morning, uh, what we're looking at is one of the things, one of the dangers There are dangers. It's not just, uh, you know, things that, uh, fears that we have. There are legitimate things that groups of people tend to deal with when they go through times like this church is about to go through. And so this morning, we're going to look into this little tiny letter of Jude to see one of those things and how he calls us to combat it. So if you have your place in Jude, if you'd stand, uh, that's our habit here. Verses 17 to 23, there is only one chapter. So, Jude 17 through 23. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most most holy faith, And praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This is God's word for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask for your blessing over this time. Pray that you would speak to our hearts. Soften them, open them to places where we need to be challenged. And in all things, Lord, let Jesus be the one uh, who comes to the forefront. He is our only hope in, in the next life and especially in this. And so we pray that you would make much of him as we seek to make much of him this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. When Alexander the Great died in 321 BC, his generals divided up what was at the time the largest empire that the world had ever known because there was no, uh, he had no heir. And so his generals carved up his territory or his empire into four territories. After Julius Caesar's death in 44 BC, Octavian, Mark Antony, And and the little-known Lepidus divided up the Roman Empire into factions that would go to war eventually uh, with with what would occur as Octavian uh, being crowned Caesar Augustus. Real-life stories, quite frankly, far outmatch any intrigue from something like Game of Thrones, right? And of course, we have biblical stories too. Paul plants a church in Corinth. Early Christian leader Paul, plants a church in Corinth, and almost immediately after he leaves, The congregation begins dividing themselves up based on whose teaching they like more. I'm of Peter, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Christ. I'm better than all of y'all, right? They start dividing themselves up into whose, whose gifts are flashier, who has more money. And this is what we do, not as Christians, but as humans. This is just simply what we do. It's even more prevalent when a leader who's been around for a bit is suddenly absent for whatever reason. Interestingly, we're not sure why, but it doesn't seem to be any evidence of it. This wasn't the case when Jesus ascended, but it was the case and continued to be the case after that first generation of leaders, the apostles, moved on. It was consistently an issue in the early church. So how, well, rather, why do we do this? And how do we guard against it here in this place? What we're going to see this morning is simply this, that when we see a vacuum, what we need to fill it with is mercy, not with our agendas. Okay? We need to fill that vacuum with mercy, not our agendas. If you're a note taker, there's an outline there. If not, don't worry about it. Well, let's, let's get into this. Okay, so, so Jude, all right? I know everyone has had bunches of their quiet times in Jude. Uh, what is this book? Jude Jude um, is one of the brothers of Jesus. In other words, he was a son of Mary and Mary and Joseph. He, he's a brother of James, who is also wrote one of the books of the New Testament. He is not an apostle. And he tells us that, right? He says, remember the words of the apostles, those guys. He is not an apostle. However, he is a writer of the New Testament, and in fact, he calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James and and worships Jesus as God. Now, as an aside, you guys who have older brothers, ladies who have older brothers, what would it take for you to believe that your older brother was God? I mean, think about that. It's one of the things that I don't think we think about enough when it comes to uh, the way the early church began to see itself and the early church proclaimed things about Jesus, right? It's like it's one thing for Peter or John or his brother James to say something about Jesus and say, yes, we believe he's God. It's another thing for his brothers who had to live up to him who didn't believe in him, and in fact, the the Gospels tell us they didn't believe in him, they thought he was crazy, to all of a sudden start calling him Lord. Start calling him, start worshiping him. What would it take for you to begin to worship your older brother, right? Something I think if if we have doubts about Jesus and who he is, we need to think through quite significantly, okay? So Jude uh, is the younger brother of Jesus, uh, he's, he's writing this letter in the mid-60s, and by that I mean the 60s, not the 1960s, he's writing this in the 60s, and what he's doing is he's arguing uh, particularly for defending the church against false teachers, okay, it's a really short book, it's only, you know, one chapter, it's like 26, 25 verses, really short. And so these verses, 17 to 23, that we're about to get into, are like his, his closing argument. It's like the final part. The next section is a doxology. Now to him is able to do immeasurably more than blah, blah, blah. Like to him be the glory, which is awesome. But this is his final words, right? So, when we deal with his final words and we're dealing with the time period, we need to understand that when he's writing, this is kind of the end of the ministry of the apostles. They are starting to die. The 60s are when uh, Peter and Paul die. We know James, John's brother, is already gone. He died early in the, the history of the church. The, the, that first generation, the eyewitnesses of those who had seen Jesus walked with him, are starting to phase out. And that means that things are happening in the church, and things are going to happen in the church. That Jude especially thinks we need to defend against. There's a changing of the guard. Okay? So let's see how he begins this. Look down at verses 17-18. He says, You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ said to you in the last time, there will be scoffers following their ungodly passions. Okay, so again, he's saying, remember these guys, these apostles. He is not an apostle. Okay, so what's the difference? If you're new to church, this is an apostle is like one of those uh, crazy churchy words. An apostle, there's two ways to take the word apostle. In In the New Testament, sometimes it means just those who are sent out right so in that way we would consider like a missionary who's being sent from a congregation they are being sent and the word sent is apostello so it's he's a or apostolos he's he's being sent out they are an apostle however there are certain guys that Jesus sent and called them his sent ones and those were his apostles. And so generally, if you're looking in the, in the New Testament, um, there, or, or even in, in like books where people are talking about him, if you see a big A apostle, that's a particular office. It's a particular group of people. It's those, those 11 at this point, because you know Judas had a sad story. It, it's these 11 who, he, who Jesus sent and said could speak for him. So that's who he's talking about. Remember these guys... And they said to you, and they had these predictions, okay? So what does that mean? Well, it's easy to misunderstand. This is not a direct quote. We have nowhere in the New Testament where this is a direct quote from someone. What he's talking about is the general inference that this kind of thing that he's about to say would happen. What is that kind of thing? That there are going to come scoffers, and I'll get to what that means in a, in a second, who are going to try and lure you astray, pull you in a di- different direction, okay? And, and this is something that is a theme, right? Jesus talked about it. Jesus talked about um, these, these uh, false prophets. Beware of these false prophets who are going to come, and they're going to say, hey, follow Jesus. I'm going to show you how. Paul talks about it, right, with the Ephesian elders, if you're not familiar with that, in Acts um, in, in the book of Acts, as Paul is heading his way to Jerusalem, he meets with the elders of the, of the church in Ephesus that he loved, and he gathers them together, and he says, there's going to be some who rise up even from among you elders in the church who are going to try and pull the church in a bad direction, try and take the church astray. It's scary. So this is something that happens, that, that we know is warned about a lot And he says that they said to you in this last time. Now, the 90s really messed up our understanding of this phrase, the last time, the last days, right? 90s just jacked it up. And if you, if you remember, if you were a Christian in the 90s, if you were alive in the 90s, okay, I know some of you were not, but if, if you were a Christian during that time, you know that when, we talk, when, it, when, the, when people talk about the last days or this last time, we tend to think it's a particular era that's gonna have a big chart and there's gonna be dragons and all this crazy stuff. When the apostles, when the, when the New Testament uses the word in these last days or in this last time, they're talking about, all of the days from the resurrection of Jesus until his return. It's not like a subsection of that. It's not like, when are we going to get there? We're there. All right. We're all there. You don't need to wonder. We're there right now. It's this time between the resurrection of Jesus when the new creation invaded into our reality, Jesus' resurrection, and then the time in which the consummation of the kingdom happens, and he comes and, and makes all things new again. So that is what he's talking about. In these last times, in this epoch, between the resurrection and the return, there are going to be these guys we're going to call scoffers. Now, there's another biblical word, right? How many times do you use that in your normal parlance, right? That guy over there, what a scoffer. It's a word that's used a lot in the book of Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, the word scoffer is often used as a synonym... With, uh, uh, with two different categories that the Proverbs use, a fool <laughs> and the wicked. They are someone, according to the book of Proverbs, that are pursuing their own ends for their own uh, benefit. Right? I think I've told this story before. I had a, I had a, a professor in a seminary. His name was Bruce Waltke. Uh, Guy, incredibly brilliant guy. He taught, he taught a class on the Proverbs, and he did that because he wrote a two-volume commentary on the Proverbs. And so when you write a, two volumes on something, they generally make you teach about it, right? And so he's teaching on this, and his first class, he comes in and he says, the book of Proverbs is about understanding the difference between righteousness and wickedness. When you check out a book from the library and take it when you know it's needed for a class and your classmates can't have it, wickedness. When you come in late to my class fumbling around with a bag of chips, wickedness. Like and he would just go on this rant about this and, and, and you'd think he was joking. He was not joking, okay? He was not joking. Uh, he, he was a lot of things, but funny was not one of them. And so, What he was trying to point out was that the the Bible understands this concept of wickedness as I'm going to use whatever I can, whatever I have available to me for my benefit and against you. So it's for me and not for you. And that's what this scoffer is. This is a person who is trying to benefit themselves and they're doing so he says, by following their own ungodly passions. Now, this entire kind of set phrase, and maybe Jude is where the guys get it, but it this reminds me, and maybe it doesn't you, but it reminds me of like the sweaty TV preacher, right? The ungodly passions, and he's railing against those, those worldly people. Well, ungodly, obviously, again, there's a bunch of things we can think of when we think of that, but But the Bible really means that which is not done out of reverence for God, that is generally opposed to his way of being. And a passion, this particular thing, when he's talking, this word that they use, doesn't mean desire. Desires are fine. I mean, you know, like we are creatures of desire. We have desires and God made us that way and a a desire in and of itself might not necessarily be something wrong, right? Like, so in other words, um, you know, a a lot of people, not everyone, but a lot of people have a desire for a spouse. That is not wrong. They have a desire to be genuinely or generally liked, right? I mean, no one wants to be hated. We all kind of like, it would be nice if people thought well of me. But this word means over-desire. It's a desire that is out of order. In other words, what, if you have a desire to be liked, and your desire suddenly is, is, that is the most important thing to me, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes so that other people like me, that has gone from a desire to an overdesire. That's gone from something that's good to something that you're making God. And that becomes a problem. And so that's what he's talking about here. We're talking about the fact that they're, they're, these scoffers are passionately following this over-desire for something, pursuing their own ends. And so what do these people do? What do these wonderful people do? Look down at verse 19. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit, okay? Those that cause divisions. They are dividers. In the New Testament, this is one of the worst possible things, that you can do or be. I know that's really hard to believe, right? Because in American church culture, dividing is something we do over everything, right? I don't like the color of the carpet, taking my ball and going home, and we take a bunch of people with us. I don't like the way that that decision was made. We take a bunch of people, we gather them, and we leave. Dividing is something we do all the time. The American church always has one foot out the door. But in the New Testament, it is one of the worst possible things. Did you know, maybe you didn't, you know the word heretic? We use that word, you know, we talk about that. We don't don't use that word a lot. There are some PCA churches in which that word is used a lot. The word heretic does not mean you don't have your theology straight. Did you know that? The word heretic means you are divisive. You are a divider of people. A heretic was someone who took their ideas and used it to divide the church. That was a heretic. Now we're just like, he doesn't have his ideas on baptism, right? Heretic! Not the same, okay? Not the same. What this word means, this, this, this word dividing, it means splitting into factions or even cliques. And there's a bunch of ways this can be done. This can be done through false teaching like the traditional view of the word heretic. It can be done through that. It can be done through grumbling, hanging out in your group and grumbling about decisions that are made or things that are being done or ways that you would like to see things happen. Or it can be done by simply having a particular agenda that is opposed to the leadership in your community. I have an agenda and I'm gonna push it no matter what the leaders in my church are saying. And to this, Jude says, they are worldly people, right? Devoid of the spirit. Uh, some of your translations might even say fleshy. <laughs> I love that one, fleshy. Like, what other kind of people are there? Like, I don't know. It's, it, this is super churchy words, okay? When you see, most of the time, when you see in your Bibles, if you're reading the Bibles, and you see, and you see flesh and spirit set apart from one another, Okay? And, and this happens a good bit. Paul does it in a bunch of places. What that doesn't mean is flesh meaning physical versus spiritual being incorporeal, like Casper, right? It's not the friendly ghost versus the real guy. It is, what it means is, when it says spiritual, it means that which is empowered and filled and, and guided by the Holy Spirit, and which means fleshy, means that which is not. Okay? So in other words, what he's saying is, is that these are folks who are acting according to their natural bent. Because the Bible says that like you and I by nature and our natural bent are bent away from God, bent towards looking out for ourselves. Martin Luther would say that we were turned, that sin turned us in on ourselves. That we're normally supposed to be kind of oriented out towards others in God, but instead we're kind of hunched in and our, our natural bent is looking out for number one. And Jude is saying that that is what is going on here. Now, here's what's important. This is something that can be done and can happen because you are not a Christian. But it doesn't have to be. Christians do this too. Well, how is that possible, Rick? Rick? because you and I wrestle with that same bent every day. Now, let me talk a little bit about what the roots of division are, because division is a real danger all the time in the church. And this passage finds the roots of this practice in the fact that those who do it are, you know, worldly, quote-unquote, right? And so let me reiterate what I just said. That does not mean non-Christian. It can mean that, but it doesn't have to. To be worldly, to be governed by the world, means to uh, be, be, uh, be seeking worldly things, want, to want worldly ends, and to do so by worldly means. Here's what I mean. Worldly things means something that we want in place of the gospel. Something that we want in place of the gospel and we are driving the church to get it. That could mean power. Like I will be someone, I will, I will mean something when, I, when, I, when the church is kind of made in my image and my ideas are running it and so what you do is you undermine the leaders of the church to get it. It could be affirmation. Like I want everyone to think well of me. I want to be the person, me. I want to be the person that when someone has a question or, or their life is going off the rails, they pick up the phone and they call me or text me. I want to be that person. And you're willing to do whatever it takes to get there. And so what you do is you begin... Highlighting everyone else's faults so that you look that much better, right? Those are worldly things. Worldly ends basically means things that the world wants to be right, to be powerful, to be the hero. And you want that so bad, and you're like, I just wanna be, I wanna matter. And so I wanna, I wanna, I want that so much that I'm willing to justify whatever I need to do to get it. And worldly methods, worldly methods, those are simple, right? Those are doing things according to the way the world works, and not necessarily the way that Jesus teaches us. It's it's um, it's building coalitions, right? It's going into your small group, or maybe you're kind of you're going to um, I don't know, open gym at, at Gypsy Hill Park, and everyone's got their kids playing, and you're talking, you're you're just kind of building your coalition, building that group of people that will that will agree with you when the time comes. Maybe it's that little slight towards those you disagree with in front of others. Oh, well, you know what they deal with. You know what that, I mean, God bless his heart. It's seeking to influence people away from the leaders of the church. Now listen, not because they are in sin, but because you don't like something they're doing. You don't like a decision they're making. Not that there's, there's a problem, that needs addressing, that's a biblical issue. This is a sin issue, and I'm, that is fully fine. But because there's some, you have a preference that's not being followed. See, here's the problem. Oftentimes, divisive people can fool themselves into thinking that they are pursuing the good of the church, that they are helping, that things would be better if we did it like I want it, instead of like they want. And so, yeah, I mean, really, I'm just trying to make things better. Now, listen, why am I talking about this so much? Because this is the kind of thing that happens when founding pastors leave all the time, because it is the time that some will assume it will be easier to exert their will to get their preferences to the forefront. So how do you recognize it? Well, here's the way that you can tell, okay? Let's say, I, I'm sure you would never wrestle with this. So this isn't you. I'm talking about how, how you would recognize it in someone else, okay? If, um, if you're talking with someone and they begin taking little shots at church leadership, like how, how those, those, I mean, they don't have much experience. You know, I mean, they're new at all this. Or, you know, I mean, Well, I mean, of course they said that. You know what's going on in their marriage, right? of course they did that. I mean, you did see them at that get-together last week, right? They don't have the experience. They don't have the knowledge. Again, you know, just, oh, bless their hearts. If that is something you're hearing, you are in the midst of a divisive person who is trying not to convince you of a position. Listen to me. They're not trying to convince you of a position. They're trying to make you distrust those that they disagree with. That's what they're doing. Positions can stand or fall on their own. Some of you are very familiar with rhetoric and modes of argumentation. That is called an ad hominem argument. That has nothing to do with the the position. It's discrediting the person. We love that on social media. Should not be present in the church. So look at me, if you are holding a position so strongly that you are willing to undermine the trust of others in leadership, you need to ask yourself right now, right now, why do you need that thing that much? If this is you and you have convinced yourself that you are pushing the good of the church, but you are doing it through these worldly means instead of through prayer and engaging with the leaders, then listen to me. Even if you are right, you need to repent. Even if you are right. Because you are being divisive and Jude is calling you a scoffer, following your own worldly passions. To be right or to be powerful or to be loved instead of following Jesus. Okay, so what do we do? How do we combat that, right? We're gonna let that sink in a second. Now let's let's get on, how do we combat that? Because if that was a danger in the early church and the ones that they're moving on from are the apostles, like the people who walked and talked with the physical Jesus, I mean, what hope do we have, right? It's a danger here, too. Well, look down at what he says. Look down at verses 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now, first and foremost, I need to be clear on something. Every time you see the word you there in English, it is a plural, not a singular that means that what is being called for by Jude is a congregational call. Obviously, there are individual components to that. We have to individually do, but this is about keeping a focus as a congregation, not simply as an individual, okay? So what does it mean for the church as a whole? Well, first and foremost, he says, build yourselves up. That is a a phrase that is used in a bunch of different places. Paul uses it. Um, In in Ephesians 2, he talks about building up, being built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, okay? It it has to do with understanding yourself and this congregation, a church as, as the temple of the Lord, and so building up that spiritual house, you're building up according to your holy faith. Now, there are two ways to take this, okay? So stick with me for a second subjectively and objectively. Subjectively, it means building yourself up in your, your faith, the faith that you have. It's like a, it's, a, it's a, an experience, it's a trust, it's all that stuff. And that, it could mean that. But more likely, it means objectively. Like, in other words, the faith. Build yourselves up in that faith, this faith, the Christian faith, Okay? In other words, the answer to divisions is reinforcing the faith. Okay, well, great. Well, what is the faith? It's the central message of Christianity. Is it what we think about how to do small groups? No. Is it our opinion on children's ministry? No. Is it, is it how we, uh, where the money goes in our budget? No. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is to be the focus of the church. Always, no matter who is up here, the focus of the church, build yourselves up, focus your attention on the gospel of Jesus. Praying in the Holy Spirit. It does not mean praying in tongues. Sorry if you come from a charismatic background. I'm really sorry. That's not what it means. You can't see that in scripture. What it means is praying empowered by by the access of and by the leading of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives you access to the Father. He is the one who is empowering you and he is leading you. And keep in the love of God. This is similar to Jesus' statement in John 15, abide in my love. The implication here is that by reinforcing the gospel and through prayer and the spirit, you will remain in the central part, like in the middle of the road, that, that narrow path, you're right there in the love of God. And then he says that as you're doing this, you're patiently waiting for the mercy of God that, that, that kind of brings this eternal life. Look down and he says, he says that waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. What he's talking about is the, is the return of Jesus. That mercy is not like the mercy that comes by your uh, coming to faith in the first place. It's like him coming to renew the world. And that eternal life, that's another word that we get wrong. Uh, the, the, The actual word does not mean life eternal. It means life of the age. It means the fullness of life that Jesus came to bring. It means in that fullness, awaiting the mercy of God to come and bring the fullness of the kingdom while you're staying in the life that God has made you for, okay? So the prohibition to avoid divisiveness. Don't don't listen to those dividers. And he says the way to do it is to build yourselves up in the faith. In other words, the answer to the divisive is not better arguments. It's not better arguments. It's, it's It's not the gotcha moment. It is focusing on the gospel in the ministry of the church. Okay, now here's what's awesome. The commands that he gives to build yourselves up are followed by commands sending you out. Look down at verses 22 and 23. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. Okay, now this is is a little bit of a technical argument, but I think it matters. When he says have mercy, that is an active verb. It means you're something to go proactively do, right? Not something that comes to you. Be merciful. Not be merciful. Go have mercy. You see the difference? Be merciful is something that happens when those come across your path. It's something that happens when you come across those who are doubting. Like that, you come across that someone happens upon you who is, who is, um, needs to be snatched out of the fire. But he's telling you to go be active. And he has three categories of those to have mercy on. The first is those that doubt. That word doubt is used a ton in the New Testament, it means someone who is at variance with themselves. So it can mean someone who has doubts about Jesus, like they're not a Christian, they have doubts about Jesus. It can also mean someone who is a Christian or at least professes to be a Christian and has doubts. Like they, they, are, they are doubters. And it could be those who are wandering towards these divisive practices. It could be those who doubt the gospel. It could be those who doubt Jesus. It, it could be all of those things. That's the one group, have mercy on them. The second group, those that need snatching out of the fire. Ooh. Like if that image disturbs you, and I'm sure it does, some of us here in this room, I think it's supposed to. I think it's meant to. I think it's meant to disturb us, <laughs> right? This is, these are those who are on their way to judgment. And to snatch, that word snatch, which I love that they translate it that way, it, it does literally mean to take by force. You know, in this case, it's like, be active in rescue. Go actively seek to rescue those who need to be snatched out of that fire. And then the third category, those stained by the flesh. Now, we come to this one a little less clearly, but I think it's still understandable. I think we can get it. Because he's like, uh, he, he says, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So this gives the impression of this is someone who is just stuck in their stuff. You know what I mean? Like, they're pursuing things that aren't good. They can't seem to help it. They're just stuck. And he's saying, go have mercy on them too. But do so understanding that there there needs to be a little different approach. You need to still be clear on the danger of their behavior, both for them and for the church. Right? And so, in other words, mercy, in this case, is the overriding principle that we are to, this is, what helps us from divisions listen to me, what helps us from divisions, building ourselves up in the gospel, and going to show mercy to others, those that are doubting, those that are dying, and those that are stuck. You with me? I want you to note this: What there isn't is a respond to a void. A response to avoid these people. Nor is there the response to be passive. Let them come to you. Wait and see what happens. It is to actively engage, it is to seek and see them restored. You push back against divisiveness by focusing on ministry to the doubter, to those close to judgment, and those who just can't seem to get their stuff straight. Like us. Right? All right. Let me wrap this up by talking about keeping the main thing. I love the way Jude answers the question of divisive people in the church, and I love it because it is so gospel-focused. And of course it is. But look at it again. He says to build, you, you need to build yourselves up in the faith, focus on the gospel, be patient waiting for Jesus' final rescue, understanding that that is coming. You don't have to try and make... All things perfect here and now. He's going to come and do it. And then, out of your faith and your reception of mercy, go show mercy to others. What he is saying is keep the main thing, the main thing. Keep it that. Build yourselves up in the holy faith, not the holy faith and your preferences. The holy faith. And the reason he is saying this is that it is easy in these transition periods, right? For them who are transitioning from the apostles and us to get off mission and focus on the things that, that you think are necessary because it is easy during these periods to think that the church exists for you and for me. <laughs> It's easy to think that what will make things perfect is your preference. And so Jude is saying to the church, focus on the gospel. Pray and depend on the spirit. Trust Jesus to be everything for you. And out of that, go and show mercy. Out of the free mercy given to you in Jesus, show mercy to others. Okay? Again, I cannot emphasize this enough. This is... Is a congregational call. This is a call to a church, not just to you personally, but to the church. To focus on the central tenet, the central message of the faith, the gospel, instead of on these things that can divide. So, what will you focus on, Holy Cross, in four weeks? What will be your focus in four weeks? Because I won't be here. What will be the focus of this church? Better, what will you hope that the focus becomes? See, when you are focused on showing mercy to doubters, to the lost, and even to those persistent in their sin, you are forced into a dependent position. Because if you, and listen, you know this because you've had this in your own life. You can't change you better than them. Like, you, you can't change you. How are you going to be able to change them? You have to admit your powerlessness. You have to lean on the spirit. And, so, and your focus is not on you, on your glory, on your rightness, on your preference. It's on Jesus. It's on those who need him. And it's on the glory of God. So look, I literally have a month here. And at the end of that month, when I leave, out of the wrong belief, quite frankly, that things around here happen because Rick says so, there will be some who will see it as their chance to finally get what they've wanted. If this is you and you're thinking about this, I need you to listen close. Make your case to the elders Make your case to the elders. Like I said, you might be right. But if they disagree with you, and this is not a gospel issue, you have two choices. One, and I hope if you can't do two, please do one. One, go find a church that matches your preferences. Or two, You submit yourselves to the leaders that you have promised to submit to and pray that perhaps the spirit would change their heart or yours. That's it. And so if you can't do the second, look at me, please do the first. If you can't do the second one, And maybe you can't. Maybe you're not in that place in your faith. Maybe you just don't trust people. Maybe you certainly don't trust these these guys. Okay, I get it. Some of us are there. We can't change that. That is what it is. If you can't do number two, go find somewhere where you'll be happy. But don't destroy this. Please, don't destroy this to make yourself happy. If you find yourself trying to gather a following, highlighting the character issues you see in leadership or challenging whether they should really be in their position at all, even if that's only by implication, I am here to tell you and I love you and I do, you are being divisive. In the classical sense of the term, you are being a heretic. You do not have to agree with the elders, the deacons, your leaders, but understand that most divisions in the church come from people who think they are doing the right thing. They don't have evil intent. They think they're doing the right thing. They think they're helping things improve because their vision of how it should go will improve it. I would encourage you that if you can trust Jesus to rescue you from your sin if you could trust him to depend on his life, death and and resurrection alone to save you if you can trust in his mercy on your life, can't you trust in his ability to lead his own church even better even better take all of that energy all of that passion that's that's making you get appointments with people all over the place to to talk up your position. Use all of that time and that energy to get appointments with people who don't know Jesus and go talk to them about your Savior. Just turn me down a little bit, Bobby. I don't know what's going on. Thanks. Thanks. Take all of that energy, all of that passion, and focus on the main thing. Helping people encounter, know, and show Jesus. Because when there's a vacuum, we need to fill it with mercy, not with our agendas. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you are the Lord of your church. You love her more than we do. You love this congregation more than I ever could, more than any of us ever could. And so we ask that in that love and in that mercy, you would preserve her. You would frustrate the plans of any who would want to see her divided. Even because they think they're right, and they may be, maybe they're right. Maybe they found the best way to do whatever. But Jesus, have mercy on this congregation on your church, and on those, on those who may be tempted to pursue their rightness at the expense of what you've built. Have mercy, Lord, we ask in Christ's name, amen.